He calls his time in the Marines the greatest job in the world. And this from a man who's worked with several thoroughbred superstars over the years. We'll talk with Ken McPeak's assistant trainer, Sergeant Jeff Hiles, on this special Veterans Day edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Almost undoubtedly over the years, you've heard media people who cover racing talk about trainers putting their horses through their paces. It's as if the trainer is some kind of drill sergeant and the horse is a plebe or a cadet. Well, in one case, at least that's actually true. Jeff Hiles is a second-generation horseman, son of trainer Rick Hiles, who's the longtime president of the Kentucky Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association. Jeff was also a Marine. He enlisted in 2001 at the ripe old age of 21 and served for five years, becoming a primary marksmanship instructor. Now he's an assistant to the well-known trainer Ken McPeak. Sergeant Jeff Hiles oversees McPeak's string of horses based at Churchill Downs. McPeak is down the road at Keeneland in Lexington. Sergeant Hiles went from teaching the newest members of the most prolific military ever known to cleaning stalls, washing horses, and pushing feed carts. We'll let him take it from there as we welcome to In the Gate Sergeant Jeff Hiles. What made you decide to join the Marines in the first place? Well, I'd always wanted to be a part of the military. You know, I, I wasn't sure which branch I wanted to go to, but I always liked the Marines. And to be honest, you know, their uniforms stood out to me. And when I was deciding on the branch, I went to the Air Force, I went to the National Guard here in Kentucky, the Army, the Navy, and when I walked into the Marine branch, I just kind of felt like I fit. I liked the way the guys looked in their uniforms. and They just kind of stood out to me. And they had more to offer me and what I wanted as far as uh, joining uh, the armed forces and serving our country. What did you want? Well, just I, I, like I said, I liked the way they looked. Uh, I wanted to be physical, physically fit. I wanted to be part of what I thought was an elite group. And, you know, the, the Marines, we do more with less for one. And, it's just it's just uh, the camaraderie camaraderie of the group that they had there at the recruiting station, and I wanted to be a part. I wanted to feel like I was a part of like a brotherhood, and that's what I got. What did your father and mother? We know your father is a trainer, HBPA president. What did he and your mother say when you told them you were joining the Marines? Well, you know, I think they were they were happy because. I come from not really a troubled past growing up, but I really didn't have a lot of direction. I always knew that I wanted to be in the horse business, but I really wasn't sure how I was going to do it. You know, I was I was young. I was 21. I was going to college at University of Kentucky, and I, I really wasn't sure I wanted to major in. And it wasn't that I was lost, but I really this is something that really helped me out and helped me mature a little bit. You know, going into there at 21, you're a little bit older than your 18 year old, so I had a little maturity on me as far as that goes, but I still wasn't a full-grown man yet. So I think that they were happy that I chose that. They thought it was the best for me as well. 
And so, I, you know, my father, heck, he, he was taking me back and forth to the MEP center, you know, at 5 in the morning before he came out here to the track. So I could go through all my, uh, you know, stuff stuff that you have to go through before you even join the military. So they were they were happy. They were proud. And, uh, you know, they come down to Paris Island when I graduated boot camp. My whole family come down, and they were real, they were real happy that I, that I chose to do that. Now, you spent five years in the Marines, four of which were based in Hawaii, but my guess is you weren't sipping margaritas at poolside. What was the Marine experience like for you? You know, I, I, I loved being in the Marines. I look back on it, and it was some of the best time of my life. The memories that you get and, you know, the people that you're with, you know, the friends that you make. I still I still communicate with the friends that I made in the, in the Marines, even though it's been 10 years, 12 years since I got out. Um, in the Hawaii, I spent three and a half years in Hawaii. The first year, I guess, first seven to eight months was, you know, nothing but training. You have to go through your, your boot camp, then you have to go through combat training, then your MLS school. And then finally you go through, you go, you go to your duty station. Well, when you get out there to Hawaii, I mean, it's, you know, the experience in itself, I'm coming from Kentucky. I, I traveled a little bit through the Midwest and stuff like that growing up, but I was taking it to a whole different level, you know, and I was the only person in my class to actually pick Hawaii. You get a dream sheet. And I'd always wanted to go to Hawaii and I I picked it and I got it. And when I got out there, you know, the first month, you're just getting used to life being in the military because all you know up to this point is just the training aspect of it. You don't know what life is going to be like. But once you get there to your duty station, you get into your unit and stuff, it's it's really like a job. You know, you, you work from... I mean, it's a little more rigorous than your regular eight to eight to five job or eight to four four thirty job, but you just you just adapt to it. And, and you know, at nighttime, you still got your your liberty. You can go out in town. You can do whatever you want. And you know, I surf while I was out there. Learned how to do that. And I mean, it's just it's just like your, you know your everyday life with a little more demanding. It sounds. So fa- what, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hawaii was a great experience. I mean, no, you weren't, I wasn't, you know, necessarily partying the whole time I was out there, but I still had a great time. Now, it sounds fairly self-explanatory, but I read that you were a primary marksmanship instructor. What does that exactly mean? Well, what we do is, is, you know, my basic job was I was aviation supply and I worked in a warehouse. Well, you cross-train in so much stuff in the Marines. I, I can't speak for the other branches, but in the Marines, you cross-train um, in different areas. Well, we're all basic riflemen. You know, we're taught that in boot camp. We learn how to shoot the M16. And then when I got, when, when you get out and you start picking up rank, you can, you can go into other job fields. Well, when I picked up Lance Corporal, I was a good shooter. So they, they made me a coach on the rifle range. I go out to the rifle range with my unit and I would, I would coach Marines how to shoot the M16. Well, when you're coach, you, you're, you're only dealing with your unit, and you're you're really handling about four to four Marines at a time, and it comes on different relays, and there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. But anyway, the more rank you pick up, the more responsibility you get, you know. So when I picked up sergeant, I went to a primary marksmanship instructor school and became a primary marksmanship instructor. Well, what that did was it, it uh, actually worked. I moved my job from my unit and went to our base rifle range. And so I would sit there and I'd watch Marines coming out to the, you have to qualify with the rifle once a year in the Marines. And then I would also, I would sit there and watch Marines shoot and I would pinpoint what they were doing wrong, trying to make them as accurate as possible 
when they were shooting their M16 and their nine millimeter pistol. I was, I worked on both. So we, you know, one week we would have, um, you know, Marines coming out shooting a rifle. The next week we'd have Marines coming out shooting a pistol. So I was just, I was, I was an instructor. I was a coach, like coaching a basketball team or trying to teach somebody how to do a golf swing or, you know, anything like that. I was kind of like a master of shooting the M16 and 9mm. Were you deployed outside the U.S. at any point? No, I never had to. I never had to go anywhere outside the U.S. When you know, in 2004, when Afghanistan and all that was going on, Korea that we're dealing with now was the same way back then. So we were in Hawaii, so they were they were kind of holding us back. Now we had units deployed over to the desert, but they were kind of holding us back. And if Korea had a had a you know really started to take off, we would have had to go to Korea. What do you think made the decision makers keep you in the States to teach others versus being deployed to utilize those skills you had in action? Well, that's, you know, we were, we were getting people ready to go to war. It's, it's just like boot camp. You know, the drill instructors down there, they're not going to take the drill instructors out and say, hey, you're the best at this area. We're going to send you over to the desert to fight. No, they're going to keep you back so you can teach a mass group to go to fight versus just sending one person or something like that, you know. How do you how were you treated by your colleagues who did deploy more often than you did? Oh, they 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 were they, there was nothing no tension. I mean, it's part of the job. I mean, it's just like there's when you're, you know, that's the best thing about the about the Marines I can speak for is you're just you're just part of a group. You're not it's it's like it's like a brotherhood. You don't get upset because somebody has to deploy and you don't or vice versa. You're deploying and some other person don't. It's just what you do. It's just a way of life. It's not looked at as like, oh, well, Johnny didn't have to go and I had to go three times. You can't help that. It's just it's something you just overcome. It's not, there's no, it's not, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's not like the regular world. You're, bro- you're, you're it's a brotherhood and you, you just do what the job requires. You've said that the Marines taught you a lot of life lessons. Which ones stand out for you? Oh, there's so many. It's you know, I, I was talking last night to to a friend and just talking about acronyms that we were learning in the Marines and how they relate today. Discipline. You know, I went in as a young kid and I really didn't had no direction and, and there's so many so many things. It's just I mean, discipline is a big thing. It's Getting up, going to work, not missing work. You know, there's so many people. Like, in my job today, I had two people miss work this morning, and it throws a complete wrench. And the 36, we've got 36 horses here, and we've got 22 employees. Well, when two of them miss, it completely messes up your whole routine. So just the, just the matter of getting up and having to be at work, you don't call in sick when you're in the Marines. If you are sick and you're deathly ill and you can't get out of bed, then they make you get up. And you go to the doctor right then before you miss work. And if you don't do that, then you get in trouble for it. So things like that are, you know, huge for real life and being successful in real life. When you were finally discharged, what kind of an adjustment was that for you? It was difficult. It really was. I can't sit here and and sugarcoat that. When I got out of the Marines, it was really difficult. I mean, it's not the same. It's, it's just it's, I can't I can't really explain it, but 
people who will listen to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not the same camaraderie when you come out to the real world. It's not the same as, you know, being that part of that group. You've got everybody supports one another. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are. None of that matters when you're in the military. You're you're sitting there guarding the person right next to you. It doesn't matter. When, you, when you're in a firefighter, you're working together or anything like that. None of this bull crap goes on about, you know, people standing, you know, doing the race thing and none of that matters. You don't look at that. So the adjustment like that coming out in the real world and then you're hearing all this stuff on the news and it's just like, man, sometimes I wish I was back in the military so I wouldn't have to deal with all that. Well, and also you had a unique skill set that you developed in the military, but then you became a civilian where some of those skills would not necessarily translate. How did you feel about that? Well, you know, they translate more than than what you think. Everything is is you know, it, it translate it, it does it does actually translate more because you're not it doesn't matter what your job field is. You're learning how to be success, successful in life. I mean, you're learning what it takes to get up in the mornings and to be accountable is the biggest part. You, know, you be accountable for your actions. It, it, it's just uh, it's taking a young boy and making him into a man. What did I don't you know if that really answered your question or not? But yeah, no doubt about it. Now, what did you think you were going to do once you were discharged? Oh, I had it all planned out. Uh, of course, life hasn't really gone the way I planned it. But <laughs> you know, my I'm I'm six foot four, and my first dream in life was to be a jockey. You know, my father's a horse trainer, and I, I grew up on the on the track. I would I remember when I was eight or nine years old, we had thirty five horses at Ellis Park. We didn't have any help. I was helping my dad groom horses and walk horses and. Heck, I had a pony down there I rode, and I remember my dad looking at me one time when I was, like I said, eight or nine. I had the whole get-up. I had a helmet. I had my own whip. I had chaps. I had goggles jockeys would give me and had a pair of jockey boots. And uh, I said, you know, I got it planned out, Dad. I'm, I'm 16. I'm going to come down here, and I'm going to get my license. I'm going to ride horses in the summer, you know, in between break, summer break from school. And he looked at me, and, you know, like I said, I'm six foot four. I was a big kid. He said, you know, you better find a different dream because this one ain't going to work out for you. (laughs) You know, I I I wouldn't let it go. So, but eventually I knew that I wanted to be in the horses. So coming out of the Marines, I had a plan to go to, I I wanted to come home. I wanted to claim a horse and I wanted to work with my dad and I wanted to learn from him how to train horses. And this is, this is what I wanted to do. Well, things didn't quite work out. Hold on one second. Things didn't quite work out like that, um, so I ended up doing some odd jobs. I started a construction company, which pretty did pretty well with that. We opened up a restaurant, a sports bar and grill in Frankfurt, the hometown where I'm from. And I worked I worked with another guy. I had a bunch of rental property, but my end goal was always to get into the horses. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, Sergeant Jeff Hiles trades in his fatigues for jeans and work boots as he takes his place in the racing industry. So don't go away. Our guest is Sergeant Jeff Hiles, former Marine Corps marksmanship instructor and now assistant trainer to Ken McPeak. 
When did you go to college? Before, during, or after your time in the service? I went to college before and during. Uh, you know, being in the military, you're, all your tuition is paid, and they actually have college classes. They have colleges that will come to the base, and they have a learning center there. You can take college courses on base. I went to um, the University of Kentucky for a year, the year right before I joined the Marines. I went, I went there, and like I said, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And my recruiter picked me up the last day. I had to be out of my house. I was living on campus. And my recruiter picked me up the last day of college of that semester, and he took me to Fort Knox because they were bringing three drill instructors in to give all the people who were going to boot camp a little taste of boot camp. And I, I did that. And when I, the first night I was down there, I thought, you know, who in the hell would do this crap? Because he had these three <laughs> drill instructors coming in just, just reaming us. I mean, they were – it was it – was, you know, it's something I hadn't experienced before. It was worse than football. It was worse than basketball. I mean, you know, you go through tradition, but these people are up in your face. They're screaming. They're yelling. It's constant chaos. If you've never experienced that chaotic atmosphere, you're like, oh, especially as a 20, you know, 21-year-old kid. And then, you know, that night I'm, I lay down, and they come in the next morning. It's like 5 o'clock. They're getting us all up, going to be on a certain line in a certain way, uniformity and all this stuff. They're just giving it to us. And then, you know, later on that day, we started getting into the marching, into the the different things that you do in the military and the Marines especially. And uh, by noon, I think they said, uh, what do you think? And I said, tie me up. Now, in addition to your father, whom we mentioned earlier, Ken McPeak is on the Kentucky HBPA board as well. Was it just a natural for you to wind up with him, or was there more to it than that? You know, I had worked for Kenny a couple of times before this time, and things just didn't work out. I told my dad my plan. He said, look, what you really – my dad, he only has like 10 horses. He only keeps like 10 horses. He's a little older now. He didn't want a big string of horses. And he said, look, if you really want to do this – you need to get in with somebody who has a big stable, who has a lot of horses. And so he introduced me to Kenny, and I worked for him on his farm for a little bit. And then I worked for him one meet at Keeneland. This is back in, like, 2008, when I first got home from the Marines in 2006, and then in 2008 as well. And then, you know, like I said, I had a construction business in between these times. And I finally, in 2014, I think it was, I was I had a pretty good job as a – parts manager. I was using my military experience at a car dealership and I was trying to save up money. I was going to do it on my own. I had money, good nest eggs saved, saved up. I was going to come out and claim a horse. I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. And then I took my dad's advice. You know, I thought, you know, maybe I need to, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. Maybe I need to work under, uh, you know, maybe I need to work underneath somebody who has a big string of horses because that's what I want to be one day. I want to be a big trainer. I don't want to be just the guy who has a claiming horse here and there. And so I sent Kenny an email and I had tried working for him again. They just weren't needing help. This wasn't the right time. I'd sent him an email and he responded right back to me pretty quick. I said, look, you know, I'm looking to make a change. I'm going to come work for you again. And, you know, I, I just want to get rolling. And he, he wrote me back pretty quick and he said, look, I'm going to need some help at Keelan. We're bringing in all of our two-year-olds are going to be coming in Keelan. You can help set up over there. He said, contact this guy, which is Alan, who I work with hand in hand now. So I contacted him and said, look, you can start Thursday. I'm like, whoa, uh, Thursday, this is like Monday, you know. And I was like, I need to get my employment, a little, little notice and stuff like that. And I went to, to a place where I worked, and I said, look, i got an opportunity. I just can't pass up right now. 
I've been wanting to do this my whole life, and I've got a good trainer here, and I, I want to. I, I got to do this, and they understood completely. Wished me the best of luck, and you know, I started off working for Kenny then, and it was uh, April of 2015, maybe. What's it like to work for him? It's it's you know at first it was real it wasn't that it was difficult because when I come to work it's not like I'm coming to work it's like I'm coming to life my whole life corresponds with my job and it's good it's it's in a, in a good way it's Kenny he's taught me a lot it's like I said coming into this I didn't know near as much as I thought I did and if I had started on my own without any guidance from anybody I probably would have fell flat on my face. And that's just being honest. There is so much that is, that is involved in this and running a big stable. I can handle the people. I've got our, our people set up like clockwork. And like I said, two people missed this morning and threw a wrench in us because I utilize every person to their max potential. And we get done. We're so efficient when it comes to that. But it's cool to see, you know, I remember the first time I saw him get interviewed over at uh, Keeneland. We had Dothraki Queen running in the Alcibiades the two-year-old Philly race. Actually, we just had a Philly finish second in. And I thought, man, that's where I want to be one day. I want to, I want to be the one who they're interviewing. I want to have 100 head of horses in training. I want to be able to manage all this stuff. First off, it takes people that he can depend on to, to run each string of horses. And he kind of sits back and says, okay, do this, do this, do this. It's been a great learning experience. It's cool to see him travel the world. He's big on social media. Uh, he's doing his best to bring more to the racing, and, you know, it's it's, it's great. I'll tell you what, I couldn't have sat down and prayed for a better opportunity for myself. You know, I, I couldn't have sat down and wrote out the, the opportunity that I've gotten and made it better than what I've gotten by working for him. Yeah, my family watched that Alcibiades a couple of years ago. My wife yelled out for obvious reasons, winter is coming. Now, uh, you've been there for <laughs> roughly, what, yeah, we said like about two, three years now, I believe. And Ken McPeak's Magdalena Farm, as we alluded to, has had a nice little run of success recently. Daddy's Lil Darling, a major presence on the scene. She comes up to the front right now, and she's opening up with authority. As Julian Leferoux just pointing Daddy's Lil Darling the right direction, she does the work, and she's leaving these in her wake. It was a good run by Summer Luck, then Lamont agrees, but exiting grade one company, Daddy's Lil Darling, simply overwhelms this field. And very impressive, taking the dueling grounds oak. I believe you've been with her every step of the way. What's that been like? Well, I haven't been with her every step of the way. You know, last year they had her, um, and she, you know, finished second in, I think it was second in Alcibiades over there. She was over at Keeneland, actually, last year. Well, he let me take her to Payson Park this past winter. I had her there all winter long. And she's a tough filly. You know, we had her main rider who sticks with her, and she's still tough. And, you know, fortunately, she came out this year, and she finished sixth in the Florida Oaks, but she didn't run a bad race the first time on the turf. She didn't run a bad race. I think she got beat like three and a half lengths. But we, she had some problems going into that race. She washed out real bad. She didn't, you know, she, we took her over, I think, the day of the race. And it was her first first out of the year. So we were still hopeful for her. And then, you know, we, tra- we kind of trained her just a little bit different there at pace, and it's such a good track there that we shipped her, we flew her home uh, the week before the Ashland at Keeneland, and she finished second, and that came rolling at the end, barely got beat. And then, you know, we brought her back down to um, Churchill here, and she ran in the Kentucky Oaks and made a huge run behind Abel Cosman to finish second there as well. And then, you know, since then, 
I haven't had her. But going up to that point, I've, I've had her all through that time. It's real. It was awesome to watch her. It's so impressive to watch her with uh, Lay Peru down there at, at Kentucky Downs. She just did that so effortlessly and easy. Well, yeah, I mean, do I dare say that it's a coincidence that you haven't been with her since May and she got all keyed up before what would have been a start in the Epsom Oaks in England in June? You weren't there. Are they related? Uh, I can't say that. You know, it's like I said, she's a tough filly, and they don't use ponies to post over there. I, I think you can get one, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Anybody would have made a different decision going back into that race if you could see what was going to happen, but it's just a bad coincidence, you know, and, you know, you look at look at what she's done. She's come back and look, she set a track record down there at Kentucky Downs. So the guys over at Keelan, they know how to handle her. It's not, I don't think it's that I wasn't there that made the difference. That's not it at all. All right, final question. Thank you so much for all of the time here. What did being in the service give you that now translates into your current job? People management, I think. I think, you know, this is a trade you have to learn. Horses, you have to learn. Either you have it naturally, you have to learn it, or that's something that you can't get as far as when it comes to pe- when it comes to horses. As far as what the military gives me, I am able to sit up this barn and run it efficiently efficiently with the help that I have. I can maximize their potential. You know, it's mostly, I think it's mostly people management skills. You know, I had 250 Marines coming out there with loaded weapons who I had to manage and get them in, you know, all there on the rifle range. It's not like you just, you know, you're at a job, you're starting out with young high school students. These are young high school kids who are full of testosterone running around with loaded weapons. I was put in chaotic situations to where something might bother the person who is in a stressful situation. I'm able to handle stress a lot better. Uh, You know, things... Chaos. You got military is organized. Marines is organized chaos all the time. That's all it is. It's so chaotic. So stress levels are a lot less here than what they would normally be had I not been in the military. It certainly seems that this, from all indications, will be a very happy Veterans Day for Sergeant Jeff Hiles. Thank you so much for a few minutes and continued success, sir. My, my pleasure, and thank you very much for taking the time to interview me. Remember, you can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.